Hello and welcome to episode 418 of the Crate and Crowbar, a gaming podcast being recorded on the 18th of May, 2023. Here to tell me why we did another one of these is Chris Thurston. I don't know. And Jamie Britton. Hello. Justify yourselves. Why are you here? <laughs> I'm here to hear a series of incredible sounds. I feel like <laughs> I don't, I can't explain this, but I feel more alert to noise right now than I've ever been in my life. Every little creak of my own chair, every gurgling noise within my own body. We've encountered them all in the course of setting up for this podcast. And now I'm hyper alert to all of them. And that's the energy I promise to bring for the next anywhere between 10 and all minutes. Have you heard of those uh, incredibly soundproofed rooms, which are meant to be the quietest rooms ever designed by man? And apparently people who inhabit them can hear their own blood. It's, <laughs> it's so quiet. Incredible. Yeah, I, um, I've not been to one of them, but I have been to the uh, inexplicably outer space themed room at the Bath's Thermi Spa. As far as I understand it, the Romans in their leisure activities did not have an outer space themed room at the Baths for which Bath is named. I don't know why I say those two words differently, but I do. Scouser, that's why. Yeah, well, but like, as in, I think, you don't worry, I think that's it. I think I live in Bath because that's how I would say that word. But if you go to the spa, that's the baths, because that's <laughs> yes. the economic band to which that's accessible. You know I once I mean? uh, had a teacher at school who was so posh, he pronounced it Glastonbury. <laughs> In what context? Oh, he was just like saying the word. <laughs> oh, right. I can't imagine you'd encounter him there for any of the reasons one might go there. You know? <laughs> the, the festival or the tour, right? Um mm -hmm. Hmm. Um, but yeah, no, they have a they have an outer space themed room where you lie on a very hot tile bed and, and in a sauna and just watch a video, a CGI rendering of what space might be like, which is effectively very similar to the Mass Effect uh, galaxy map. And it is remarkably, uh, it's remarkably calming, I find. Uh, is this in the, the historic baths or in the, <laughs> the, the new yeah, spa? Like I'm saying, it's, it's an authentic Roman at Mass Effect oh. Galaxy Lab. No, this is in the. <laughs> okay. <laughs> this is this is in the the um the spa. You know, there's like the, the baths themselves are like a museum, right? For mm. of that, you know, thing. But they, it's it's they're pumping the same water, aren't mm. they? Are uh, they directly? Yes. Or at least promised as such. I think they <laughs> yeah. I think they filter out the 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 sulfur and the you know, hell gas or whatever else is down there. I, I was just going to say, that, that water in the Roman bath looks, like, really gross. You can drink it. They'll yeah, let you, you drink it. And yeah, they'll give I you a back. little... Yeah. I got as close as to putting my nose in the little beaker they gave me, and I was like, I'm not that intrigued, actually. I've drunk, I've drunk it twice. Wow. <laughs> I have. Like, because it's actually, I find, I find of all of, um, you know, as historical sites go, I've always found that one, which took me a while to visit because you never visit the mm. tourist locations in the places you live. Um, pretty, um, pretty entertaining as, yeah, as great. encounters of history go. Bill Bryson does a little audio tour. How did the water affect your humours, Chris? Um, well, I, I don't know, but I've had several Rennies since. <laughs> okay. <laughs> so, the humours neutralising mint chalk tablet as I understand it. I have to say, despite having asked to justify yourselves, I can see no reason why this podcast has continued for as long as we have uh, without talking about video games, which is ostensibly its purpose. Mm. I would indicate that Jamie has not yet justified himself. Ah, there's the opportunity for you, Jamie. 
Well, I had a great time while you guys were talking about Bath trying to silence the uh, tap behind me with a Rube Goldberg set of sponges and J-cloths and various implements in order to uh, uh, stop the dripping noise from happening. Um, Mm. Because the said tap has been dripping for literally months now. (laughs) And uh, (laughs) although it's been very much at the top of my agenda to get a proper boy round... Uh, to come and fix it. Um, <laughs> I, I haven't even been a proper boy enough to uh, make that happen. Uh, because the guy I know who knows about this stuff said I had to get a special thing off Amazon that cost two pounds. Um, and I haven't done that. So yeah, wow. that, that, that just meant I've just, I, while you were talking about Bath, I was just able to wrestle with my own masculinity for a while <laughs> and just generally feel bad about myself uh, as it's finally bled over into the the portion of my life I care most about, which is um, high quality audio recording. <laughs> Does the uh, the uh, jerry rigged improvisational mechanism you have constructed uh, remind you of any experience you might have had in a video game recently? <laughs> is it desperate to land one of these segues? Don't don't rise to it, Jamie. He's trying to bait you into <laughs> keep telling me about sponges. What what noise do you think they'll make when they fall over? Do you think it'll be fun? <laughs> sure, we'll find out. <clears throat> Yeah, yeah, actually, it does remind me of something because uh, the way I finally got it to work is I've, I've got one of the sponges going backwards in time whilst moving upwards. Um, <laughs> and that seems to have worked for now. So, yeah, it's all good. Uh, would you like to hear about Zelda? Tears of yeah. The so I have played a lot of Zelda Tears of the Kingdom over the last week or so. Yes, it can only be in a week because we're recording this on Thursday, so it's only been out for six days. Um, yeah, it's a tricky one to know where to start with, to be honest. Um it's amazing. Um, I'm pretty sure it's amazing. Uh, uh, just to be clear to people listening, um, I won't spoil any plot elements or any character stuff or any story stuff like that while I'm talking about it, um, insofar as there is story and plot and stuff. I mean, there is, but it's such a dispersed game that you know I haven't actually encountered that much of it in all the time I've been playing. Um, but I will talk about some of the mechanical stuff, um, which I think is... You know, if you want to go in completely cold, I would understand um, because there is a lot of joy in sort of puzzling things out in this game. But um, if you're all good with me kind of spoiling a little bit of that stuff or just talking a little bit about that stuff, then I will. So um, the thing that everyone's saying about the game and is absolutely true is that it is a immersive sim. Like it absolutely is an immersive sim. They give you early on, they give you three powers. One is called Mega Hand. And it allows you to <laughs> stick things together, uh, to pick things up, manipulate them, and stick them together. One is called, I want to say rewind, but it might be called repeat. That's the one I'm using on my sponges right now. Um, that will basically get an object to travel backwards in time from whatever it's just done. And then the other one, which is a really weird one, is called ascend. And this is one when you're sort of lurking around in a cave or anything with a sort of overhead ledge, you can fire up ascend and you will sort of fire up and sort of swim through the rock above you and emerge uh, your head only out, out of the ground, sort of peeping out, and then you can decide whether you want to pop yourself out. Um, it's very, very strange. Um, it never feels entirely comfortable doing it, but it is very useful. Um, and, uh, yeah, it's it's a spectacular game. The opening hours where you're sort of set, if, if you remember in Breath of the Wild, there was this kind of plateau that you started off on, um, and after the sort of opening little um, cutscenes and story stuff, you're sort of set off into this little 
um, tutorial area, which is quite robustly challenging. Like it doesn't hold your hand. It doesn't tell you how you got to do stuff. Um, you know, it, it's, it's a pretty well thought through tutorial area. And I had the thing where I sort of stuck the cart in my switch started playing and like looked up and like six hours had passed and I was just sort of pootling around on this on this sort of opening location um I don't can't remember a game being that instantly mesmerizing um I was just completely involved in it um and completely like lost in its various systems and mechanics and sort of joys of um you know sort of cobbling little gadgets together by sticking them together and and sort of playing around with them and collecting things like it gives you a a really wonderful version of the game in miniature um before setting you out into the open world um the open world is you know it's hyrule but there's also this um uh, upper level this sky level which which has all which is sort of as big but has all these sort of floating islands with stuff on them and then uh, down below there is also this sort of sub layer which is absolutely enormous and is a kind of Elden Ringy style um, underworld full of all kind of creepy beasties and, and stuff like that um, and yeah the, you know the game is in essence you know more of the same in terms of that kind of wonderful uh, you know a journey of sort of going on a fetch quest across the continent unlocking areas of the map going on side quests Whereas Breath of the Wild felt kind of, you know, kind of beautiful and numinous and sort of empty in a kind of glorious way. For me, I think Tears of the Kingdom feels stuffed. It almost kind of Skyrim-like in terms of how often things are happening and things are occurring and people are sending you off on on, on side quests and challenges. And there is so much joy in, in navigating it. Um, the game is a technical marvel. You can skydive from a, a platform high up in the sky, you know, shoot down a hole in the ground below, and then plummet into the the depths of the underworld bit um, and land there, and then have a fight immediately. It's just extraordinary. It looks beautiful on mm. the Switch as well. Like it's kind of kind of remarkable that it's it's on that console, to be honest. Um, and yeah, it's just a it's a dream to play, um, a dream to explore. Um, it's probably my favourite game of the year um, so far, and I think it's unlikely anything will come along to knock it off its perch. I'm interested if I start to feel like bored, because I think there is a tension in these games between how much they hold your hand and how much they let you go off and explore. And I think that's a tension that they're trying to engage with with this game. Like They're trying to sort of take the same world and the same character and the same basic rules and, and kind of you know, build on that whilst still retaining what is good about, you know, the original game. Um, and I think it'll be interesting to see how that how that feels after, you know, 20 more hours, 40 more hours, um, and see how that kind of um, unfolds. Because at the moment, it feels pretty good. But there are some, the, the slightly fuzzier aspects of the game, I think, are victims of that. So like, I had a boss battle recently, which I kind of felt both overpowered for and underpowered in a different way. And I think that was as a result of like how the game sort of throttles you at some points and, and sets you free at others. Hmm. Um, what, do you, what do you mean? Or is that a spoiler to say? Well, it's not really a spoiler. I guess, you know, some of the things that you need in the game are like... Uh, so I'm fighting a boss which requires a very particular um, item to beat. And the game allows you to fight this boss as soon as you've sort of made your way to it. Um, 
And what happened for me is that the boss fight was much longer than it should have been. Like the boss fight ended up being like 25 minutes long. Oh, um, just because I got to a point where I'd almost killed this thing. Um, but because it needed this particular item, um, uh, I had to do it in a, a slightly laborious way. <laughs> and there probably would have been a clever way to do it, but I didn't have the kind of nous at that point to be able to do it. So I had two options of like, you know, quitting out of the boss fight and going and grabbing more of the thing I needed, which would have been a bit of a search, or just kind of whittling it down in the way I did. Um, so there's that kind of aspect to it, which I, I don't think will be necessarily an uncommon experience, but I think it will be an experience which requires like a certain mindset of, of player, because hmm. there is an immense amount of freedom in this world. There is an immense amount of influence that you can have over it and a true immersive sim level of reward to be had in puzzling your way through this. It just it was just that when I played through that particular boss fight, I didn't quite have it in me to think of a clever way through. So that is the only kind of sort of downfall of it at the moment, but I actually think that's also sort of a problem that is that all immersive sims have to a lesser or greater extent, that it's just mm-hmm. very, very hard to give grant players that much freedom um, without... Um, uh, without having a few moments where people are just going to be like, oh, I don't even know how to leave this room or whatever. So, yeah, it's really good. I wanted to talk a little bit about um, the combat because the combat, I think, in Breath of the Wild was, you know, okay, but pretty pretty serviceable, really. It was just kind of a, a pretty transactional affair. Whereas in this, the game I honestly would compare it most to is Heat Signature. Because mm. you have this fuse ability, which basically means you can take up, you can pick up your rudimentary planks and bits of wood and crappy little swords and, and things like that, and you can fuse basically any object in the world to them. So you can make, um, you can make, you know, a stick with a rock on it, or you can make a stick with a flaming torch on it, or you can make a sword with another sword on it. Um, <laughs> you can make, you can put mushrooms on your sticks, which makes enemies bounce off them. You can put um, seeds that you would normally use to light up areas on your shield so that when enemies hit them, they explode in flashes of light and blind them. You've got this, and that, that is just like a tiny fraction of all the stuff you can do. You can also, in all of the various objects you pick up, when you draw back your arrow, um, you can press up on the D-pad and it will allow you to attach basically anything in your inventory to that arrow. And that can you know, be fire, bombs, electricity, you know, all manner of mad shit. Um, and so what it ends up feeling like um, in combat is you sort of parachute into these, you know, big groups of goblins and moblins or whatever they are. Um, the game will pause when you're using your fuse ability or pulling back your arrows. And you end up basically in this kind of wonderful uh, uh, kind of combat where, at least for me, it's about overwhelming the enemy with kind of really, really like huge amounts of items and objects and changing weapons you have a kind of you end up with a bag of murderous comedy props in a really kind of um <laughs> heat signature way like you're a prop comedian but you're bringing out swords covered in fire and and ice grenades and <laughs> oil and all manner of claws and stuff like that and that just means it's immensely fun it means stuff like when enemies drop their shitty weapons you're actually pleased 
because you can't defuse your items from the weapons. So a stick is actually a really exciting opportunity for you to fuse it to um, a, a, a beehive, which <laughs> I did earlier. And uh, every time you hit an enemy, um, bees fly everywhere and sting both you and the enemies. Um, <laughs> and it's completely crazy and insane. Um, and the fact that time pauses when you're sort of selecting those items is really key. It means you can do things like, so this mob, this goblin camp had a, a big dragon monster flying above it, which was stupidly carrying a huge explosive barrel. I was able to shoot the explosive barrel um, out of the sky and then lay a bunch of um, pine cones on the floor, which in this game, when they touch fire, they explode hugely. So that meant by the time the explosive barrel hit the ground, I put pine cones everywhere. They all exploded. Everyone was on fire. And then I was able to catch the updraft of the uh, the flames and then come back down again with more death from above. So it's just like immensely fun, immensely ridiculous. And it has that heat signature thing of like, you make mistakes, but you're a stake. your mistakes just end up being a kind of the game yes-anding you, like in an improv game. It just says, yes, you've done this stupid thing, but that means you're going to have to think your way out of this with whatever crazy gadgets you've got on you right now and think creatively with them. And that just feels like revolutionary. It feels amazing to do. And it feels like something that Nintendo have never really um, uh, sort of trifled with before. Like it feels like an incredibly uh, sort of brave new world for them. Um, And yeah, so far for me, like a lot of the game has been just kind of playing it almost like a, Uh, a Far Cry (laughs) game and just sort of clearing out enemy outposts and having fun doing it in in various, like, ridiculous um, ways. The other thing that the game has is, like, building, like, really involved building mechanics, but really, um, again, beautifully conceived. So there's all these, like... um, gadgets and batteries and bits of um, technology from an ancient civilization. It's all quite Mass Effect, actually. The game has a very similar plot to Mass Effect, which is weird to say, <laughs> but it's true. Um, and there's all these kind of, yes, mechanical gubbins lying around, which you can assemble into things like um, cars and aeroplanes and uh, all sorts of stuff. It's amazing. Like I found on the beach, I was running along a beach, and it was taking me ages to get to where I wanted to go. And I saw a control stick, which looked like a kind of, yeah, like a sort of Segway controller and a fan, um, a sort of hovercraft fan. And I thought, oh, wicked, I can make myself a sick Segway. All I need to do is um, attach this control stick to the top of this fan, stick a battery on the back, fire it up, and off I'll go. I'll be zooming down the beach in no time. Um, it didn't do that. It just hoofed me into the sea, which is really funny. It just, <laughs> it just sent me sailing away up into the sky and into the sea. And then I just had a wonderful like half an hour where I built myself a crazy car. Uh, and that was how I worked out you could build a car in the game. And the moment when I like worked out, okay, so the, this goes on, the wheels turn this way. I need to connect this battery here. I need to, it's all really like cleverly intuitive. And like zooming down the beach in a car that I'd built myself, like a stupid jank mobile, that was just a real moment of joy. Uh, like I haven't experienced in a long time in a video game. You know, obviously they've laid those bits out in just the right way so that you're walking along this kind of long stretch of beach and you're just sort of distracted enough to sort of cobble this thing together. But the fact that it's there, the fact that the game doesn't hold your hand through you doing that is just like, yeah, it's like a, a, a sort of deus ex level of, wow, what are the possibilities here? This just feels like um, an immense amount of freedom and and choice as a player to kind of 
be creative and 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 express yourself, which feels kind of almost like first playing Minecraft levels of that kind of possibility space expanding in front of you. And if they can keep that pace up for the um, rest of the game, it's going to be uh, something really, really special. Um, the <laughs> I'll talk about one more thing, which is um, a really, really, really stupid thing I did. Um, but I was very, very pleased with it. Um, and and perhaps you'll find it amusing to hear about, or perhaps not, but you just find it maddening. But they have their shrines, which kind of returning from the first game. So these are like like special areas, sort of dungeons that you can go into, and they all involve puzzles that involve using your abilities. So I thought the one I'd stumbled into was maybe a late game one because it took me ages to solve. So I thought, oh, maybe this is like a quite an advanced one. So what it was, I'll try and explain this best I can. You, I walked into a large room uh, after entering the temple. There were two sort of shapes on the floor in front of me, kind of blocky shapes. Uh, a door, a locked door, and then high above, um, a sort of high above the door, a sort of blank, a sort of empty space in the wall. So I had to get to the other side of the wall. Um, and there, also in the room, there were two sort of L-shaped blocks. So what I thought was, oh, okay. What I need to do is stack these blocks on top of each other, um, so I can get high enough up above the door and then jump through that hole. So what I did was I stacked those blocks on top of each other. No, not high enough. I couldn't get through. Nowhere near close, in fact. So I was thinking, okay, so obviously that's not it. Maybe if I stack these blocks on the shapes that are in the room, these kind of slightly weird, unfinished shapes that are here. Um, no, not even close. That doesn't get me anywhere near high enough. I'm, I need to go much higher. Okay, well, one thing I can do is I can... Um, uh, use the uh, power hand, whatever it is, power fist ability to sort of send one of these blocks up and then allow it to fall back down again. And then I can use my rewind ability to um, send it back up again and I can kind of ride it up like an elevator. Hmm. Um, no, that didn't work either. That didn't get me high enough. I'm getting there though. Okay, so the next thing I try, I'm going to climb on one of those vague shapes and that allows me to have kind of more height to my kind of tractor beam thing. So I can send the block up even higher. Um, nope, that doesn't work either. That's still not high enough. <laughs> okay, I'll fuse both blocks together, um, send them up, uh, and, and hopefully be able to climb on both of them. Nope, that didn't work either. I'm still not high enough. Okay, I'm going to take one of these blocks, put it on one of those vague shapes. That gives me a fair bit of height. Then I can pick up the block that's still on the floor, raise it up as high as it possibly goes, um, and then do the replay trick on that as well. Uh, no, that still doesn't work. I'm close. I'm pretty close to the uh, the gap at the top, but I'm still not there. So the thing I eventually work out how to do is I can stand on the vague shape on the floor. I can lift one block up um, very, very high by, by standing on the free block I still have to lift it up as high as I possibly can. Um, and then what I want to do is put this, the block that I'm standing on on top of that block in order to give <laughs> myself the extra height I need to get up that high, okay? So I have to stand on it first to get up that high and then put it on the other block. Now, if you just fuse this block to that block, you can't use the rewind ability because it would contradict with it, right? So what I worked out I had to do was send that block up, then use the um, rewind ability on that to make it go back up to the top, 
and then also set another rewind ability going on the other block, the one I'd just been standing on, to sort of plop it on top of the other block without actually <laughs> fusing it, okay? So that I could then have time, just enough time, to jump on top of it and go up on that one and then use the extra height of the block that I'd placed on top but not actually fused to jump through the hole. And I did it, right? I, that, that worked. So I got up to the top, I jumped through, phew, that took me an hour, right? That took me an entire hour. <laughs> and it doesn't include, I must be maddening to listen to, what it doesn't include is the fact that all of those steps required really fiddly, like, well, I can't actually, I have to, like, move this block a little bit here and stand on this other block and stuff like that. There's a whole bunch of bullshit in there. I was, like, sweating. I was, like, and I felt so good. I landed on the other side of the wall. Um, walked around the corner. There was, like, a robot fight. Often they give you a little fight after that stuff. And then into the next room of the puzzle. Um, which I looked at, <laughs> and I, it was very similar, two indistinct shapes on the floor, but I looked up at the wall in front, and there were also more blocks in there. There was no hole up by the ceiling, and I realised that the puzzle wasn't at all about trying to get <laughs> through the hole. The, the puzzle was that one of those indistinct shapes was a completed block, and it wanted me to use those other blocks to um, slot into the blocks next to it to match it. So the game just wanted me to play Tetris, um, and instead, <laughs> instead I spent an hour playing um, Kerbal Space Program <laughs> and like pushing the game to absolute breaking point in terms of getting over there. And it really, really made me laugh because I'd literally spent an hour sweating into this puzzle. Um, it made me furious, but also the fact that the game like supported me in doing that was just completely ridiculous and wonderful. Um, I don't think there was any intent behind the fact that you could do that. It was probably just a thing where they thought, well, you can use a sort of, you know, a fire item to fly over there with your, with your, um, you know, your, your hang glider thing. But the fact that I was able to do that um, and the game supported it, um, I wasn't cross at all. I was just impressed. <laughs> um, That's so, awesome. Yeah. yeah, it's ridiculous. Um but uh, and I also think that Tom France's description of, 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 of the main activities you get up to in uh, Tears of the Kingdom, which is goblin puzzle crimes, um, <laughs> I think describes the game perfectly. They should put that genre on the box. <laughs> I realize I've been talking about Tears of the Kingdom for 27 minutes nonstop, so I'll, I'll, be, I'll stop now. But yes, do not worry, Jamie. I talked complete nonsense for five to six min of those minutes. <laughs> I mean, it's really striking to me. It feels so I haven't played it yet. I'm kind of saving it uh, for a time when I'm less. Um, well, I've got, I've got a lot of busyness coming up, so I've been kind of waiting for a time where I can kind of invest in it. But it really sounds like they have built the game around the mad shit people figured out they could do in Breath of the Wild, right? The sort of time stop, momentum transfer, speed run nonsense that people figured out that I never really did myself. And it seems very clever to just build the game around that, right? Um, yeah, they've. Li I think they've absolutely done that. And the fact that within you know, an hour or so of playing the game, I was doing stuff that in the past I would have seen in a YouTube video and thought, well, that's awesome, but I'm never going to, you know, reach that level mm. myself was just, it feels, it feels really amazing, actually. It feels like, it feels like a very un-Nintendo thing to do, which is to like look at a, a fan response to something, a sort of mimetic fan response to it, and then build that into that game. But that's absolutely what they've done, yeah. It's interesting because like Breath of the Wild is an immersive sim as well. Like, I think I wrote something for Eurogamer once along those lines. Like, it's, it's, I think it's, but it's, it's interesting to hear, like, the, the one of the things that you said that, because I was going to ask the question, like, 
you know, all I have seen of the game really, because I guess I've like avoided reading too much about the kind of the bones of the game, but you inevitably see like this person's crucified a Korok or here is a, <laughs> someone's made a Gundam with a huge dick, right? Like those, you know, like um, uh, that stuff or someone's made a helicopter, like that sort of thing. Um, so part of me was like, I, I, from the outside looking in, and I imagine there might be listeners in the same position. It's kind of hard to pass what's what is the exceptional youtube bait and what's the kind of meat and you know bones of the game like and uh the meat and bones i don't i don't know um the um but you're kind of answering you talked about things like that kind of you know the the fusing system but also crucially i think that time stop thing you know the ability to kind of effectively play the game in what sounds like a bit of a turn-based way seems completely vital given the mad amount of freedom they're giving you and i find that quite interesting as a as a way to um maybe take because i think my experience breath of the wild for example was tending to find tending to look for the intended solution to a problem because it was the one that i figured was going to be the least fiddly to pull off yes and i think i think what they've done in, in tears of the kingdom is really engage with that problem actually and thought about how to make it genuinely um not obvious what the what the solution is intended to be, but to genuinely let you puzzle it out. Um, you know, there was there was an earlier sort of mission cri- uh, story critical um, sort of room which had uh, you know wet walls, so you couldn't climb it. A big set, a big sort of thing in the middle that you needed to get up and over to essentially. Um, and the way I did it was with my, uh, you know, favorite trick of starting a fire, firing an acorn into the fire, and using the gust to kind of carry me over, which is just one of the most fun ways to do it. But you could just as easily have, you know, set up a hot air balloon to take you up there, or build an enormous bridge, or um, you know, strap yourself to a rocket. There's there's so many different ways to kind of take every single um, puzzle. It's it's kind of staggering, really rather than kind mm. of one or two. It, it genuinely feels kind of galaxy brain level. Um, yeah. And presumably the game, I'm, I'm guessing, doesn't really care how you solve something as long as you've done the thing, crossed the gap, climbed the wall, whatever it is. No, you can you can skip immense amounts of content. I did it earlier. <laughs> I just couldn't be asked to, to do the platforming puzzle. It wanted, it sort of, it's quote unquote, wanted me to do to get to a particular point. So um, I just... Uh, I just didn't do it. I just I built myself a hot air balloon and, and floated up past it and then and then flew down to it. Um, the game gives you that option like consistently and constantly. It has that Elden Ring thing almost of just not really caring how you make your sausage. It mm. just wants you to make a sausage and it wants you to enjoy the sausage and it really doesn't care about um, you know due process really it's it's a kind of it's, a, it's just kind of completely chaotic uh, sausage making um, lawless lawless yeah. sausage craft it does it does feel lawless and it, it does feel like a game which which has taken the kind of that that kind of a feeling of freedom that you had in in breath of the wild and that feeling of kind of you know not knowing what lies over the next ride and trying to build that into dynamic emergent gameplay systems that players will actually enjoy using rather than mm. ignoring. Because you can ignore them. Um, they're not game critical. The game always gives you a sort of more standard way of doing things. But the fact that I'm doing them, and I think most players will be doing them, 
I think is 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 quite possibly a real triumph, depending on how well it lasts through the game. I guess that's the question I was going to ask: Are you allowed to be boring? Because I say that as someone who's often quite boring in these games. <laughs> is it is it acceptable to just be like a little dickhead with a boomerang, like you would normally be in Legend of Zelda? Yeah, it absolutely is. <laughs> I mean, like I've spent the vast majority of my time with the game just tootling about, like just you know, literally climbing up hills and having a look. And occasionally getting into fights, but like the game, you still have an immense amount of amount of fun doing that. Mm. And there are so many surprises and weird twists and bonkers monsters to find that you're still very well supported <laughs> in your adventure just by you know just by tootling and not worrying too much about anything really. Yeah, um, I do feel like a bit like a kind of you know that kind of cliche about D and D players being like murder hobos. I mm. do feel like a slight like itinerant crackhead getting off getting off a bus in some weird village and just sort of wandering around stealing apples and getting in fights you know it's um rather than like this legendary hero I do feel like <laughs> like a, a vaguely like a just sort of an itinerant worker from the 1930s dust bowl america you know with the kind of simmering threat of violence under there plus everyone's kind of horny for you of course so it's uh, mm. um <laughs> Yeah, I think I've seen yeah. this HBO series. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but you've also invented the car, I suppose, and the plane. Yes, absolutely. So, yeah, yeah, like a kind of, yeah, um, like a horny HBO Max series about the Wright brothers or something. <laughs> I would definitely watch that. Yeah. I'm surprised it doesn't exist. So the, in the first game, I kind of got hoisted by my own petard by uh, by the the freedom of it and the fact that enemy leveling is is quite severe in the first game. I found myself getting into places where it was just incredibly difficult for me to get out again. Is that true of the second game as well, where there's just that much extra ability to skip content? Um, it, I would say it's very much true. You're still very very squishy. Like, you die a lot, like a lot, a lot, like almost a kind of spelunky level of just endless deaths. Um, uh, and enemies are constantly one-hitting, one-shotting you. Um, and so, you know, the game is really pointing you to towards kind of engaging with the mechanics of, like, cooking yourself meals so that you can um, protect yourself or upgrading your armor um, or, you know... Uh, upgrading your weapons and stuff like that. Like the game is basically saying you have to engage with these bits at least at least a little bit, but hopefully you're going to have fun doing it. Um, it does mean that, you, like, for example, the way that you upgrade your armor in the game, which I won't spoil, but it's relatively easy to miss. <laughs> I missed it for ages and then I just looked it up. Um, and so, like, that was one of the things I was sort of referring to when I, when I talk about the kind of openness of the game is that, yeah... There is very much that risk of like throwing yourself up against something and not knowing whether you're supposed to be there or not, which is sort of antithetical to the kind of whole idea of the game, I guess. I think the game, through degrees, manages to moderate and mediate against that, probably. But yeah, as I as I say, time will tell. I think as to how well that persists, um, because I do think it is a slight, not failing, but it's just a kind of. Um, uh, risk you know of, of making a game this open um because i you know i am an idiot and i need to be told what to do and the game is about saving the world but the game is also about um taking a boat down a river and, and shooting fish with a bow and arrow and then cooking them 
which isn't saving the world, but is very nice. So it's it has to kind of <laughs> reconcile those two sides of it. Um, and I think the game is a massive galaxy brain attempt to reconcile those two sides of Zelda, the adventuring and the freedom and, and trying to work out what that looks like. I'm going to have to dust off my Switch, aren't I? Yeah, yeah. It's funny to me that... So, presume, so this game has fusing, as you said. It also has, what, mega hand as the word for what? Like connecting objects, yeah, mega hand or maybe ultra hand. I can't yeah. remember which one it is. Yeah. The the word link was right there, friends. <laughs> <laughs> it's been there for years. You could finally justify it. I mean, I still keep. I still call the hero of these games Zelda. Yeah, <laughs> like I still can't help myself doing. Oh, you got to no. you got to start you got to start zelding those items together. That's. <laughs> uh, we should talk about the opposite of this game, Marsh. <laughs> <laughs> I feel I feel like maybe we should have addressed these games in the reverse order because I, I feel like we're probably just sort of lobotomizing ourselves going from <laughs> Legend of Zelda I, to... Uh... I, I mean, I think you're right, but at the same time, I feel like we had to we had to traverse the kind of law- lawless anything-goes sausage frontier so that we could return <laughs> to the hidebound, hidebound um, sausage conveyor belt that is uh, Jedi Survivor. You can also um, skip yeah. content in Jedi Survivor, but if you do that, it says, sorry, you've irrevocably broken your game. <laughs> uh, <laughs> uh, yeah. So, a, more, um, a more elegant sausage from a dignified age. Exactly, yeah. <laughs> well, we, we, we arrive in, the, in a galaxy far, far away, as it is in the, the grip of the Galactic Sausage Empire, um, <laughs> whose orthodoxies uh, and, and rigorous protocols spread across... Uh, the outer rim, um, dictating a certain, uh, just taking a big brush with Uncharted written on it and just <laughs> uncharting the fuck out of a series of extremely beautiful uh, planets that look a bit like the back end of California. And that's <laughs> Jedi Survivor. Um <laughs> So I was just seeing that all as an opening crawl. Yeah, yeah, exactly. (laughs) Then then the the text flies away into the sky. You pan down to see me uh, rummaging around in a bin and unlocking a new beard. (laughs) 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 Um, It's so, yeah, like, I mean, I appreciate we we talked about your experience returning to Jedi Fallen Order recently, Marsh. Hmm. How much of Survivor have you played now? About 14 hours. And I really like it. I've played 14 hours and I really like it. I feel bad saying I like it because it's obviously in all the ways that it compares to Legend of Zelda, not as cerebral or interesting in some ways. But I think it's just a, it's an incredibly polished matinee adventure experience with, uh, in, in all the ways that the first game gestured to that, the kind of the open openness and that, uh, the sort of, the scintillating feeling of being in a world where everything is possible and you can go in any direction whilst not actually doing that. I think it's it's done uh, a much better job of um, justifying that structure that it, it attempted in the first game. And it's addressed loads of things that were my bugbears in the, in the earlier game as well. Like, principle among those is that they've... Uh, if you listen to the, the episode in which we, we were talking about Jedi um, Fallen Order recently... Um, we were discussing that the problem that this game, and in fact, pretty much any Star Wars game which isn't directly in the canonical series of the films has, which is that they have to often create a, a dramatic narrative which fits 
imperceptibly within the distance between those movies without either being dramatic enough to engage the audience, but without actually affecting anything. Um, and that's, that's just incredibly difficult challenge. And uh, it, it, it strains plausibility uh, in the first game that the, the events that take place there wouldn't have had some kind of impact on the wider world as we've already experienced it. But here they sort of, they sort of take Cal Kestis, who's the, the Jedi Knight that you play way away from like canonical events pretty quickly um and i I think that allows you to come become just more invested in his story independent of what you know about uh the future of that setting uh from which he is notably absent um i don't they can't go super far in that direction because people expect a star wars game to have the empire and rebels and jedi and sith in some sort of tangle um but uh, I suppose it's you know harder just to tell a story in some backwater which is totally divorced from the larger story of those factions. But like at fourteen hours in, I feel like the stakes for Cal are, are quite different from the first game. He's he's disillusioned by his previous efforts to thwart the Empire. He's basically failed, and he ends up on a planet in this in the galactic fringe. And the crew have all gone their own ways. And while you, you do see them again. The the mission isn't to you know restore the Jedi Order and defeat the Empire, but to, as the title suggests, to survive, to persist, and you know uh, maybe keep safe some of the knowledge of the Jedi for future generations whilst hiding and making a life for themselves somewhere. I'm sure like the Empire will confound it in some way, and those plans will be threatened, and the larger themes of Star Wars will, will return in, in a way which is perhaps slightly inevitable and slightly boring. But as a motivation, I'm just much more invested in this story because it, none of it hinges on that existing canon in the same way. And the possibilities, therefore, are much more open for how it resolves. Hmm. That's interesting because I, I, I had a different reaction to it in some ways, just in the plot. Like, So, so it, this game is so many different things that I feel like it can kind of come at it from a few different angles. It is, as you point out like a very high production value star wars story and i will say like just as a top line thing i don't know if you agree with this marsh but generally i have enjoyed the writing and performances throughout there's enough moments of genuine like little nods of little bits of humanity or little gestures between characters some of it's pretty corny or on the nose uh not all of it lands it has a bit of a line in in sort of overlong barks and npc dialogue sometimes but there's enough stuff in there that's executed to a pretty high standard for something like this. They've been pretty pleased with it. I'll put it this way. I'm enjoying its writing and storytelling more than the last season of The Mandalorian. So that's, <laughs> you know. Ah, uh, a high bar. Well, I mean, you know, or um, Book of Boba Fett. Is it as good as Andor? Mm. No. But like, you know, it's sort of like it slides on in and tells a story in that setting. I think for me, when it comes to being a Star Wars story, I think for me it it still feels quite confused about what it wants to be. Um, And I think I find it harder with this one. Uh, My experience of this one has been, um, I'm enjoying the characters and I actually like that kind of more low key story about, you know, survival and about that sort of closer focus on um, relationships and, and the fact that, you know, being a Jedi doesn't necessarily necessitate having a, a great destiny to upend the galactic, you know, right. order. It, 
It kind of feels like the premise of the first season of The Mandalorian, which is what I thought we were going to get, but that has been steered back into yeah. canon. Whereas, you know, the, the the joy of The Mandalorian's first season was that it was a cowboy story. You know, this that's the the lone stranger walking into town and fixing a bunch of the problems there. And that yeah. seems to be like the, the 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 premise that you eventually get to after the opening in Jedi Survivor as well, where you, you just land on this planet, you find a, a nice bar, and you go around, like, sorting out people's problems. Um yeah kind of kind of (laughs) kind of and this is the thing and this is where i would sort of um indicate it is i think it's problem for me is um as a story or as a a star wars story and we can approach it from that direction first i guess is if you're making a game about jedi about you know lightsabers and force powers and, and those sorts of things you are i think inevitably um engaging with the biggest sort of most mysterious, powerful forces within that setting, right? And I don't think that's what it wants to be. And I think part of that is pop-based, right? You, you know, and part of it is really legitimate. Like, Cal is a quite believable character in some ways and doesn't, you know, is, is sort of kind of wrestling with the nature of his power and what he can and can't do with it. That's all great and actually surprisingly well executed in places. Um, there are moments where he really feels tremendously powerful. However, I think the way the story is told and the way the game is built around it fundamentally demystifies and undermines some things that I think are pretty core to Star Wars about being, and, and specifically core to the fantasy of being a Jedi. I, I, it, like, I didn't feel this way about the first game, but I'd far rather this game wasn't about a Jedi, basically. Um, because I think, you know, and I, I have moments where it really, really works for me, and I have moments where it really, really doesn't. But one of my persistent experiences of the first, like, um 10 hours of playing the game was consistently feeling like the the weakest person in any given room basically um lightsabers do not do very much damage to most of the enemies that you encounter your force powers don't affect most of the enemies you encounter except in certain uh, circumstances um, your ability to affect the world is very heavily like context-based. It is built in that kind of Metroidvania way where certain powers will do certain things, but not others. And um, and there was a moment for me kind of early on, but it was really telling where you encounter like, basically it's a mini boss, but he's basically just a regular guy, you know, just a regular mercenary you know, out for blood. And he has a lightsaber and he has a lightsaber and he fights you to a standstill with it. And that like I'm trying to kind of express the the the, the kind of tonal issue I have with it, this element of his storytelling without sounding like an awful grognard who cares about the specificities of the Star Wars universe to you know a, a boring degree. I hope this isn't that. The my qualm with it is principally like okay, like the the fantasy is substantially undermined for me by that by the fact that like you know the 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 fantasy of being that kind of like you know lone kind of Ronin style, you know, uh, uh, I guess sort of um, interlocutor who kind of steps into a scenario and settles it with these kinds of like you know awesome powers is really undermined when basically a big turkey can completely kick the shit out of you, <laughs> um, <laughs> like um, and I just it, it feels like a balancing thing for me, like something about what the game wants to be is like a sword fighting game versus what the setting will let it have. So much so that in order to find some space for it to tell a story, it 
it, it, it harvests, it, it, this is not a spoiler really, um, one thing it's very interested in is the the High Republic, which is the book series that Disney launched recently in the last couple of years, basically to give them the broader IP room to grow. Basically, they, they kind of invented this interstitial moment in Star Wars history between the, mo- the original movies and the Old Republic, where they could just sort of invent stuff wildly and throw it in there. And Star Wars does this every now and then, just like reinvent a new era to kind of start pulling stuff from. And I think as soon as I realized that's where it was going, I started to see the sort of industrial mechanisms at work, um, which tie into the broader state of Star Wars at the moment, which I think is, a, you know, and has been for a while, just like a vigorous process of demystification. And that's what really took me out of it. I'm really glad that the character narrative is there to hold it up. But as soon as I sort of started to perceive the 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 story as a bit of a kind of bridging exercise between, you know, sort of original trilogy movie era Star Wars and it's this new thing that is being invented to kind of provide some more opportunities for, for books and shows and things, that took me out of it slightly. But really the main thing was, you know, I think the game doesn't necessarily do an amazing job of... Um, making like of, of kind of following up on the, the the promise of you know wielding those powers in that setting does that make sense I was like i'm a hope i feel like i'm kind of off on on a, a tangent here but it's it make it does it feel sense. quite weak it makes sense to me i mean as somebody who hasn't played it i was wondering about like i know um that you're a big fan of like the um jedi knight games like jedi mm. academy and 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 was the other one called outcast or something like that yeah um and like how would it compare to those because those are obviously like Previously, those were the kind of, I guess, gold standard for lightsaber-based Jedi games. I think, you know, and this is, we're into, like, Chris's, like, weird little peeves here, but I love those games. And I think one of the reasons I love them is they give you a really good balance of threatening you with stuff as a, as a like, particularly Jedi Academy as, like, a nascent Jedi that's pretty threatening in large numbers or requires you to use your powers cleverly or correctly. But when you, when you are in the right circumstances... The powers at your disposal are super impactful. The lightsaber will cleave a stormtrooper in half, etc. Um, this one, and then you know, in those games, when an enemy shows up who can fight you in melee, crucially, like a um, uh, like a, a Sith or, or you know, certain like characters armed with with certain weapons, but not all. It's like a big moment. It feels really impactful. In this, there is like a really common experience will be like, there's a scout, Imperial scout trooper. He's got a riot shield. So you're going to have to like circle strafe around him until his guard is down and then stab him with your lightsaber. Like shit like that just turns your lightsaber into, it's just a sword. It's just a baton basically. And that stuff, like, I think I, I took me a while. I had to like relearn everything I was expecting about, like that fantasy of being a Jedi in order to kind of play the game that I was being given rather than the game that the setting would lead me to expect. And when I started Mm -hmm. doing that, I started having a lot more fun with it. I will say that the moments when you're like fighting another, you know, force user or lightsaber wielding character, it feels really good. And that's one of the reasons I prefer just in that sense, the first game, because the first game was constantly throwing like inquisitors at you and stuff like that. Yeah. There was this more one, of a reason yeah. for those enemies to be able to rebuff your attacks, whereas every motherfucker in this world seems to have some sort of version of an electro sword, which isn't a lightsaber, but it can still, you know, turn right. the blade away. <laughs> yeah, like there's a there's a line. It was like a bark I heard, and 
um, they, um, it's, it's like, I don't know if they intended this to sound the way it did, but there's a line where like a stormtrooper yells something like, look out, he's using the force. <laughs> and it, and it, it, it's one of those things that like, you know, if you take, you know, I think my conception of, of that universe is really like frozen in time in the moment in A New Hope where Han Solo looks meaningfully at Luke and says like, well, I've been one side of the galaxy to another and I've never, you know, seen anything to make me believe that there's an energy field kind of controlling right. my <laughs> destiny. And it's like, you know, the Star Wars like progress over the years of making Han Solo sound like a total dipshit. <laughs> where it's like, <laughs> yeah. this happens all of the fucking time. Yeah. All of the fucking time. <laughs> like, you know what I mean? Like... And so I appreciate that's like, you know, I don't, I, again, I don't want to fall down that cinema since hole, but yeah. it's, it's, it's something about it that just feels really off to me. We have doesn't. now more named characters who survived the purge of the Jedi than there are ones who've died. Right. I think that's <laughs> yeah. li- literally the case. I mean, I, I, I totally understand uh, that stuff. I think maybe because I played this right on the back of the first Jedi game, I've, mm. I sort of had already recalibrated my expectations for what, lightsabers do um so i wasn't expecting to be able to you know cleave through everything because uh you know that that wasn't the case in the first game um i I do i do think that um just generally though like one of the the problems i had with the first game which we discussed at length was that there wasn't a sort of narrative connect between the environments and the the stories it was trying to tell with those environments Mm. Um, there was often like a broken incentive loop or, or, or a really kind of trivial incentive loop for you to explore environments, uh, which would mean that you, you'd invariably end up with a poncho uh, at the end of it. And <laughs> that would be it. You know, you, you do a bunch of exploration, get to, you know, solve some environmental puzzle, get to the end of it. And there'd just be a box there with a, a different color grip for your lightsaber. And that would feel very underwhelming and a kind of poor use of that beautifully designed space. Whereas here... I think this is one of the main things it's addressed uh, in that um, whereas that the first game felt like its its openness was in search of a greater purpose. And despite it, that was, that was, it had a, like a stimulating non-linearity to its environments, but that was just very ephemeral. And after you got over that, it felt like a lot of the levels were waiting another pass to generate that really engaging meaning or function that that non-linearity would serve um and whereas here they have like loads of different each quite shallow but but loads of them uh, ways of of adding kind of meaning to your exploration so you have in the first game your reward was uh, you know a box with a poncho that's back but the like the fashion souls options are more broad here and more exciting uh you can also pick up gems which you can sell in exchange for beards which is obviously the best uh, innovation in gaming um, sure, Star Wars. You can you can change gem, gems for beards. That's been canon for a while. Now. <laughs> there are seeds which you can plant in a rooftop garden if you like. Um, there are much greater number of stat boosts that you get as a result of exploration and enhancements to your force or life meters, which feel much more kind of uh, uh, meaningful than just picking up items. There are sort of hallucinatory combat challenges that you can engage in via some mystical glowing blob that give you extra skill points there are force echoes uh that tell the stories of past people in these environments um which was true in the first game as well and and as in the first game those are very very brief and cursory um uh, they do give you xp though um but they but here they tie into Rumors, which are specific quests asked of you by NPCs to like investigate certain areas of the game, um, and 
they just weren't connected to anything in the first game. Like you were in an environment and you'd find a like a glowing blob and you'd you know click on it and it and uh, Cal would say, mm, "A settler hurt his ankle here. He was fearful." And you're like, "Oh, great, great to know." <laughs> but now these, but now those are connected to like a quick, clear question that you have already, which is, you know, a guy will ask you, "What happened to the prospectors who went into this mine?" and you know, the answer is nothing good, but you you do then have a reason to piece together their story and there is some kind of intrigue generated by it. Again, it's quite shallow, but they use all of these different things to put together um, the the narrative behind much larger events too. And all of those rewards just kind of create a, a holistic approach to sort of narrativizing the environment that I think is much more effective. And, and of course, you, you find people in the environment that you then bring back to your cantina. Um, and while, again, it's not like you're doing loyalty missions to them for them or anything or really engaging with them deeply as characters, um, it's just another sort of string to the sort of narrative bow and it allows you to think about those environments as in, in, in a more uh, engaged way. Like, why is this person here? you know uh how why are they stuck here perhaps how can i get them to come back and connecting their their sort of their their general purpose as creatures like there's a guy who just loves fish and he's a fisherman he looks like a uh i think i couldn't quite tell because his 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 um model was glitching out but i think he's (laughs) i think he's sort of a fish in a jar himself with a robot body Difficult to tell. Anyway, but the point is you find him somewhere fishy. And uh, and just the, the mere fact of finding somebody fishy in the fish place and then taking them back to sort out your tank at the cantina, I mean, that just renders the, the entirety of that environment much more memorable than were you to get through some jumping challenges and just find a box with a poncho in it. Uh, so I, th- I think it's sort of solved that to some degree, even though the it's, it's gone for breadth rather than depth, I think. I find it really interesting because I, I agree. I do agree with you, but I also found that like I, when I was making my notes for this, I did find the breadth of mad pursuits, like both kind of like, you know, I mean, I really can't express how like I both will collect all of the fish and look for the seeds and don't want to, you know what I mean? <laughs> yeah. Like, and, and the, the utter, you know, kind of breadth of its kind of collectibles and things. And the, I think this is the strange bit. I think the game that reminds me, so the, you know, the, I think the structure of the first game and, and this one as well, surprised by having some real souls influence in terms of effectively bonfires and, in, you know, environments that look back on themselves and even a kind of lightweight, you can lose your, you know, lose some of your XP and have to go get it back from the enemy that, that killed you kind of elements and things. And the other thing is obviously the Metroidvania element to it, which with like um, remembering like, Oh, there's a you know a green gate over there. I'll I'll come back there and find out mm. what's in there when I have the green gate power. That that sort of thing and that mental map of what you can and can't do in the environment in a in a very rigid sausage law fashion, um, <laughs> law, you know. Um, but the 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 game that it reminds me the most of is Assassin's Creed Two. Mm. Um, yeah. As an evolution of Assassin's Creed One, where like and that would be the leap I would describe between the two games, where Assassin's Creed Two went super broad, and suddenly you're opening shops in Florence for some reason, and you're, <laughs> yeah. you know, like it has that similar thing, and it also has that similar thing of like I think hanging a lot of its charm off the just kind of like the your enjoyment of the main characters, and I think that's mm. also true. Do you, I mean how much do you enjoy Cal? Like, I mean, I, I think he's he's fine. He doesn't really have like a a huge personality. <laughs> I, it's hard. I, what, what would you? 
And what do you think he likes? What do I, you think? You know, like, does he have any tastes, interests? <laughs> well, there's a, there's a, I, so I quite like him. I, so the thing I said about like, I sometimes wish I wasn't a Jedi in this game. I will say, I think in Cal being a Jedi of a particular kind and particular way at a particular time, they've created like perfect video game guy, mm. right? He can do everything you need him to do. Like, and I was thinking about this from a design point of view, having BD1, the droid on his shoulder, gives him someone to talk to about like critical information at a given time. He'll kind of quip occasionally, but not a lot because he's a stoic Jedi as well. You've seen him grow up into a Jedi Knight. So he doesn't really want things to your question, right? Mm. There's a there's a, there's a a series of lines of dialogue where a character kind of goads him a little bit on that and, you know, what it means to be happy versus to live by a code. And he sort of looks a bit confused and it's sort of, you know, you can have some fun with that. But like what I'm saying is his identity as a Jedi allows him to be bland. It, it's, it's like permission to not have like strong yens you know what i mean because that's the you know the the dark path if if, if a jedi ever really wants anything too hard the lightsaber turns red and they shit themselves like it's it's you know (laughs) it's like um it's like um master yoda what happened (laughs) exactly um and um but also like his power to see you know to see the history of objects and all of that stuff it's almost like perfectly laid as a kind of video game protagonist Mm. and i think that you know and and i think it is like a decent performance of that like yeah and but the the, the, what i would level at it is like it's a great solution to a problem that i'm not sure is actually a problem (laughs) you know what i mean like of like how do you have a believable protagonist in a game that is asking somebody to do everything all of the time in every direction right and it's like, it's pretty much this, this sort of person. What I will say is given the game's love of dress up and like giving you the ability to customize the character and so on, I I, I believe really strongly this game, I think desperately wants a custom protagonist. I think it desperately wants Cal to be more of a cipher for the player and more of a make your own Jedi kind of mm. fantasy. And unfortunately it's other side of its sort of huge inspiration like the kind of uncharted character driven yeah. personality driven adventure game thing pulls it hard in the other direction there's a big part of this game must be mass effect as mm. well with like companion characters that join you for certain missions and so on but unlike mass effect those are bottled moments right those are pre-planned and scripted and, and kind of happen in a certain way and something i keep coming back to and i think i felt i think i felt exactly this way about the first game as well is i really enjoy it but i find myself never quite able to tell if it's exactly the sum of its parts, less than the sum of its parts, or sometimes slightly more than the sum of its parts. You know what I mean? It's, it's like, only got parts. We've it's established that. parts. And occasionally it's like, and they're gorgeous as well. Like, you know, it's beautifully animated. Like I will say, I feel like I banged on slightly too much about the stop making me feel weak thing. And I wanted a landmark because it was a prevalent feeling when I started playing the game. And it was like, you know, I'm not terrible at combat games, but like even little things like the timing of interrupts and stuff and how easy it is for enemies to interrupt you is like really throwing me off. But when it does, when you do sort of like pull a combat encounter together with this incredibly broad range of powers you eventually have, yeah. it does feel really good. It's more that like, you know, sometimes the game will kind of steal your thunder slightly by having you kind of perfect counter parry someone and then, you know, get the ability to hit them while they're down. But instead of fucking decapitating them with your burn anything <laughs> laser sword, you just do like a third of their health bar and push them away. Um, like the games that it, the games that I would love it to hew closer to are like Sekiro, where it's like, yes, you've broken this person's guard beater, you've won. You know, that sort yeah. of thing. 
or actually ironically assassin's creed 2 where it's like you've broken this person's guard you've stabbed them in the fucking neck like mm. that sort of thing it was very hard to do just to your point about cal as a character like it's very very hard to do characters in star wars i think because there is basically only two characters in star wars there is um serene warrior monk guy or there is hot-headed rogue and occasionally people find some like some gray areas between that and that's often the most interesting stuff but for the most part that has been like the main player representation through these games all star wars games you're either han solo or you're luke skywalker yeah um and it's very hard to kind of thread that needle where they probably want you to be both a little bit um but that is obviously you know not not always going to feel the most true to form yeah he he is both that's the thing right like he is both he's a serene rogue like that's like <laughs> um and it's so funny like you know you, the other thing you can trade glittery gems for is both beards and like dash rendar's outfit from shadow of the empire like you can be you can be dash rendar if you like you can be Kyle katan if you like you can be any of these guys who are the same guy um, <laughs> and um but i think it's quite you know i think it's a successful version of that i like the little cape i have for him i have changed his beard but not his hair because it didn't make sense to me that he would grow his hair out in the time the game takes place <laughs> um um the thing i was going to kind of um land on i suppose is um i think occasionally i think where that sort of like not quite the sum of its parts thing comes from for me is I can see the kind of heavy duty design work going on in all different aspects of it and the absolute breadth of it. And then the fidelity to which that stuff's rendered, like the animations are amazing. Like the amount of like little incidental cutscenes it throws in to kind of illustrate things or cool little moments that do sell that fantasy of being a cool force person, just really through kind of digital moments and the way that's coupled with like open world breadth. And honestly, like genuinely some of this one sequence that I think is, I thought was like, it's very rare for me to be like thrilled by a relatively linear thrill ride in a AAA game, right? Like the, you know, usually involves sliding down a hill while something explodes, but like Tomb Raider does this <laughs> and Charter does this. But there's a sequence in it that is genuinely, I was like, fucking hell, it's genuinely like pretty stunning, both technically and in terms of like what happens and how phonetic it is. Uh, I was really impressed by you know, oh, to, to Marsh's benefit, and I'm not sure he's had, you know, I imagine we've played about the same amount, so you will know this, but this game, this is a game with not one, but two significant mining devices. And given what you <laughs> loved so much about the first game, I'm not surprised you're enjoying it. Yeah. You know, like, um, <laughs> um, like, and though, and you, you better believe you're going to fully interact with the full scope of that mining laser and or robot in, two, <laughs> in several different locations. Partly because this game was made presumably intense um you know at very high cost um by different teams working in different places and and everyone arrived at the we need a big mining laser destination by their own disparate routes which is the thing you can't do in this game where you will arrive at the mining laser by the route laid out for you um and um but like yeah like that stuff is and i think i think where it comes down to me to for me in the end is I really enjoy that color by numbers thing that it's doing. That like wall run here, jump on that, swing on that, force pull that towards you, grab that, jump, dash, do this thing. And the way that it continually layers new verbs into that Simon Says game over time. That's really fun. Like I really like it. Like, you know, I am the person who 
Zelda frightens me in some ways because (laughs) (laughs) because I I tire easily and sometimes I simply want to go on the monkey bars but be fully instructed in in exactly what monkey bar to grab and when whereas like given the freedom to build a hot air balloon I may simply go to sleep um (laughs) you know um and uh, this game does that and then the other side of it is this sort of open world exploration thing and the, the customization the collecting and all of the depths and all the mad stuff in that like there's a there's like a hollow graphic strategy game built into the game where you can scan any enemy in the game and then basically play what is effectively like a developer white box version of the game where you just plonk <laughs> down npcs and make them fight each other um that's in this game for some reason um but all of that stuff, that kind of like creativity, player agency aspect, I don't believe they, they very successfully reconcile with one another. And I think it's sort of in sort of, it feels like in trying to go everywhere, um, it ends up a little bit paralyzed. I don't sure really kind of learn that, but the way that I feel as a player playing it sometimes is a combination of like absolutely overwhelmed by how many people there is in the cantina to talk to. And therefore, not wanting to talk to any of them and just go do the next jumping puzzle. If that makes sense. I don't know if that's been your experience much or if you found it. You know, I haven't spoken to a single one of the people I've brought back to the cantina. <laughs> right. I've just, I expect to go back at the end of the game and the place would just be wall to wall of people. And I won't know, remember who I, I gave. Who I gave myself fucking vertigo, I think, with the content, the amount of content in the game, because there's a bit where you, there's not a spoiler, you go back to the canteen. And something has happened, something you're going to have to react to. It's not quite the kind of Mass Effect, like, you know, we're going to put you in like a temporary holding state for a bit while you go resolve a key mission. But there's an element of that. Something has happened. It's affected the cantina in a way that really you'd expect everyone in the cantina to be reacting to while you've been gone. And I was like, and you're given that option that moment, you can just dash off for the horizon to go solve that thing. But I, I had this feeling like I should go to the cantina and talk to people because if one of them has a custom line of dialogue relating <laughs> to this thing that has just happened and I'm about to solve, then all of them will. And if all of them do, then this is the only time they're going to say them. And if there are any rumors or things attached mm. to that, now is the only time I will hear it. Got to get that content. stomach sank when I spoke <laughs> to the first like nameless prospector and he was like, some things have happened here while you've been away, Jedi. And I was like, fuck, <laughs> fuck, <laughs> fuck. And I've got to speak to 18 people about this. And I did. And you know, and it's like, and part of me is like really impressed, but it's like, to me, that's a sign of like, you know, whereas if that was the Normandy between me, me, missions on the Mass Effect, and I had just a little greater sense of investment in that or a sense of control over it, maybe uh, that would be a happier experience. I don't know. Yeah, it's more of a gesture towards these things, isn't it, really, than a, mm. than a, a fulsome execution of them. I was watching a Let's Play of the opening mission, and there was a genuine lull when <laughs> the character you're with watches you meditate at your little bonfire spot. Oh, yeah. And, and when you emerge from it, you go, did you have a nice sleep? <laughs> yeah. That's a... oh, very good. There's a, there is a, there is a lot of that. There is a, there's one moment where they fuck up slightly and it's like an escape sequence and there's a character with you and you're running along and it gives you a meditation point because the next thing is going to be hard. And like, um, in the background, I could just hear like, come on, Cal, what are you doing? Come on, come on, Cal. I was like, I'm having my little sleep. <laughs> like, <laughs> and it's like, that's the only, but otherwise, like even later in that sequence, there's a bit where a character like, 
you have the opportunity to go do something mission critical or have a little sleep. And a character says, like, I've forgotten how much you like to, to meditate. <laughs> it's yeah. like making that count. It's like, it yeah. like having a little toddler who's had too much cake and just needs a little lie down in the room upstairs. Mate, that, that still happens. <laughs> like, <laughs> yeah, like Cal Kestis's power naps is a like, <laughs> um, it's a real thing. Yeah, like and there's there's some there there is some fun like um, sort of incidental dialogue and stuff in the game. There's a really strange moment where it really over-explains the concept of a yurt. Have you got into that bit, Marsh? <laughs> uh, no, I haven't experienced that. No. There's like. Um, <laughs> Like, um, there's literally, like, I'll paraphrase this to avoid spoiling it, where it's like, you know, a lot of, you know, if you're writing this game, the trick is you want Cal to say something. So you have um, you have the droid whistle, basically. And it won't, it won't subtitle the droid, but the droid will be like, woo! And he'll say, yes, that's right, BD, that's a yurt. And, <laughs> and, and then he'll say something like, you know, I, I, you know, I first saw one of these on, like, Bongar 12. Do you remember the adventure on Bongar Twelve and BB and 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 you know and um, he'll go ooh and then he'll be like and then a, a pop up will appear and you'll press select and it'll say yurts are a <laughs> conical dwelling made from rigid stru- uh, semi rigid structure used as a shelter by the people of Bongar Twelve and then you walk into the next bit and there'll be literally like a force thing on the ground and a memory and you'll interact with it and you hear a man going like going to be great to have somewhere to sleep but what is this and then this friend says you mean you've never been to bongar 12 and then <laughs> and he'll say can't say i have and then another pop-up will appear and you press select and it'll say two prospectors fell in love over a, a memory of the fabulous yurt, the chosen structure of the people, the nomadic peoples of Bongar 12. That is pretty close to something that actually happens in this game. And part of me kind of loves it, but also there's that thing of like, I guess I find myself both going like, I'm glad you did this, but really aware of like the steps that had to be taken for this to be created by humans at every step of the way. You know what I mean? And then somewhere to the left of that is like my Star Wars fantasy dot you know like pdf or whatever right like where i've detailed all of the things that i think will be in a star wars game and like you know capturing that feeling of finding the wikipedia page for yurts isn't one of them (laughs) like (laughs) like i'm actually going to so maybe not to spin out too much i'm uh, this weekend off to la uh i've been in america for a couple of weeks and i'm gonna have an opportunity next week to go to galaxy's edge for the first time and I'm really curious about how I'm going to find that because, oh, I know, I mean, physically it's in Disneyland, but like, because <laughs> I love Star Wars as like a place, but also as really as a story selling structure and as like a set of vibes basically that you attach to a story to make it feel like Star Wars. I'm not really drawn to the sort of, um, the occasional theme parkification of it, quite literally in that case. And I'm, the reason I say that is because there are occasionally moments in this where it feels like a very strange Star Wars theme park that it, where the story is trying to escape from. And I, I wonder if I will go to that theme park and be like, oh, yeah, that's it. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, uh, you know, will I will I get to clean the fish tank in real life? The famous, the iconic Star Wars fish tank? I don't know. But uh, I don't know if they'll let me. 
Um, it, is, it, is, yeah. it is a funny it is a funny thing about Star Wars, I think, that if you watch the original trilogy, like one of the things it's least concerned with is um lore, which is why I think mm-hmm. it's such an amazing act of, you know, world building that people are still thinking about and still building upon now because it does it all without basically mentioning it. It does it all by stealth and it does it all through action mm-hmm. in a way that lots of modern movies and TV shows could like really do with paying attention to a little bit. Um, but I do think that's an incredibly difficult mood to recreate either in a TV show or in a game, you know, especially in a game where like you're used to having a fucking endless glossary that you'll never look at full of stupidity, you know. Oh, it's huge um, in this game. But like, but Star Wars, the, you know, for me personally, and this is obviously absolutely the opposite of some people's experiences of, of Star Wars. It's no, no means more or less valid, but like I like the lack of lore in Star Wars. Um, or I like Star Wars the most when it's least bothered by the history of things and the origin of things and is more... I mean, that, this is the problem with the uh, the prequel trilogy, right? Is it was background context and content that no one ever needed or wanted, really. Um, and so, you know, it, I do think, like, Star Wars is also all something that we grow... You know, pretty much all of us grow up with and it's all something we'd love to kind of experiment with in, in games or whatever... But actually, to do it well, I, I just it just occurs to me it must be insanely tricky to do, and particularly in a genre like video games, which has a whole bunch of of trappings along with it. Like you're looking at you're looking at this kind of platonic ideal of those original movies, um, and trying to sort of extend yourself out from there into these different medium, and and like it's really hard because what makes those movies great is their simplicity, really, and their and their kind of their, the sort of courage of their conviction. Mm. I think the thing I mean the, the thing I like most about Star Wars um are the inclines you know the they can be sandy inclines they can be slightly <laughs> wet inclines and um the fact that you can't walk up them I think is really pivotal to the Star Wars franchise and I think that the, this game really nails that experience of of falling down very slight inclines that you thought you could walk up yeah I mean and and, and what I expect from that experience is that there will be at some accessible distance a, a freaky horse or something. <laughs> I, but you, the thing is, the thing that makes me not mad about that is that I, I, I can see the meeting where they were trying to work out what key they would need to fit this lock. And it's maybe the eighth meeting they've had about this. And, and somebody just goes, weird camel. And they're like, yeah, everybody go home. That's it's, fine. It's weird camel Fridays at Respawn. And... <laughs> I mean, we can all sleep finally. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And they all sit down on the like cross-legged on the ground and have a little sleep. Um, the um, and the problem I mean, returns. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Problems have respawned. Um, the I think I think you're right because like occasionally I find its design like talking about the Simon Says thing and it adds so many things oh God, to yeah. that. So many. Like you want to fire fucking magnetic goo from a droid, you will. Like. <laughs> yeah. um, like um, flammable, but with only with certain kinds of lasers. Yeah, laser flammable, maybe magnetic space resin. <laughs> I guess um, uh, you know more than one kind of horse you <laughs> yeah. can you can ride. Uh, There's a wet function. horses. They're the gravel horses. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I'm sure we we'll find ho- an ice horse later in the game. I, one can only hope. Um, it, but also, there's there are moments which are like. Um, uh, like I would say, like, um, 
a lot of these things are threaded together really elegantly. Like I say, when they're flowing, like these jumping, jumping into wall running into that sort of stuff, it flows really nicely. You know, respawn good at a wall run, been that way since Titanfall. They know what they're doing. And then every now and then you see what I would describe as like a fuck it class level design decision. Like, <laughs> um, which is like a new ability you get really early is like a grapple line and the grapple line goes to specific points in the environment and they've designed it very well so that that thing, that thing, the only thing you can grapple to can be basically fucking anywhere at any time. And it is used pretty frequently as a bit of a get out of level design jail free card where it's like, if we're not quite sure how we're going to get you over this one, because it doesn't really make sense to put like a climbing wall or something there. Um, it'll be a grapple point and that'll, you know, we'll turn this into a, basically a pull the left trigger challenge. And it's, it's kind of fun watching that stuff, but the moments where it's like, it does come together inventively. It's really good. What I will say, like in contrary to this other conversation from earlier, there's definitely a point in this game where you realize that if you're trying at all to invent the solution to a problem, you are doing it wrong. Yeah. <laughs> um, um, unless, um, in some case, but actually that, what I will say though, is like the actual puzzles, like, you know, threading those mechanics that you're taught together in a way to solve a problem or unlock a reward or something like that are pretty good, yeah. you know, as like, um, you know, vaguely sort of, um, you know, push pull blocks and force pull things and figure out the interactions between things puzzles. While we were talking about it, something that occurred to me is I think, um, the, the the structure of game that would free it from the need to kind of like over-explain yurts every now and then um, would be, is actually something closer to like what they did with um, Titanfall 2, uh, which in itself is heavily inspired by Half-Life 2, which is allowing a set of mechanics or a set of verbs to have one brilliant level and go away again. Hmm. I think there's something about the structure of this game that requires it to be sort of, uh, to kind of, um, it's all, uh, you know, you're never forgetting anything. That's for that's for sure. And those powers can never really be taken away from you. So it's all kind of accreting over time. You're accreting all of these new verbs, and then you're constantly going back into the open world to kind of find that one thing you couldn't do earlier, but you can do now. And I think part of me, maybe it's a lazy part of me, would quite enjoy the version of this, which is just like a series of really well-crafted themed puzzle levels built around a specific set of mechanics that we then move on from without mm. the additional breadth. But I appreciate that would be a very different game. I wonder if that was closer to what Amy Hennig was sort of originally making with with um, you know because this, this the original um, uh, Fallen Order game is was sort of spun up quickly, wasn't it, to replace the cancelled game that she was making? Mm. Um, and I wonder if that one was a, more of a kind of you know, and they kind of made a sort of Souls like, I guess, was their response to that insanely quickly. I should add, it's very impressive. Um, uh, and I wonder if yeah, the the Hennig game, and I think she is now making a version of that elsewhere, I think, um, was more that kind of Titanfall 2 sort of, um, mm. yeah, shorter, more compact, um, denser experience, because it's it's also the sort of thing that I can imagine people getting very cold feet about somewhere along the way when it's not demonstrably coming together. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, that, that, that would make a lot of sense. I hope they fix it in all the fix ways what? that it's horribly broken, or at least uh, the mm. uh, the... I hope they fix the EA Launcher app by removing it entirely and perhaps sending you, all the people who made it into the sun. Are you playing it on PC, Mush? Yeah. How are you finding it? I heard there were problems. I'm playing on PS5 and I've had none. Um, so uh, I, I played it with an uh, underpowered rig initially and it was... Uh, I managed to get 
seven hours into the game before it became basically unplayable because it was it was just struggling to stream in information all the time. Um, so with the incredible uh, generous help of our Discord channel, I bought myself a new graphics card. Um, nothing especially fancy, but it should last me a while. And it means that now the game defaults from low graphics settings to epic across the board. And let me tell you, it still looked kind of shit. <laughs> um, and uh, like, I think it was just, I think it was broken. I'd like a, a patch or so, uh, a patch a, a day or so ago um, improved it. But, but prior to that, it looked like some of the shadows just weren't being drawn at all. Uh, and so everything looked flat and weirdly blotchy. Um, but then it, it so it, it still looks better now, but it still stutters like an absolute motherfucker and it eats up pretty much the entirety of the 16 gigabytes of RAM that I currently have. Uh, so yeah, there's a big issue with streaming uh, in the game. I've turned down the draw distance and the texture resolution, and it doesn't look any noticeably worse, uh, and it has improved a little bit, um, but it's still it's still in a bit of a shonky state. I'm sure they will fix that. I know there's a big um, improvement patch coming in, mm. but the, the main problem I have with it is it takes many multiple attempts to get it to even run because the EA Launcher app keeps on crashing. Um, it, it, it doesn't know whether to log into my existing EA account or not. It, it continually gets confused about whether it needs to do that or not. Um, it, it sometimes starts running, then just stops running, and the, there's no error message. Um, I've had it crash on Quit a lot. It crashed once on Quit where it made my computer hang for five minutes and then relaunched the game by itself, which is new to me. Um, <laughs> it's just so completely awful and embarrassing that this interstitial fuck uppery exists. Like, I don't, uh, people really buying things through EA's launcher now. It just seems like a really self defeating from a, from a brand perspective for EA to have something which just fucks up their games in between the customer <laughs> and the game. Yeah. Yeah. The, the sort of like we've inserted the, uh, like a goodwill torpedo into this that <laughs> yeah. it didn't need. You know, EA's games are best when you can forget that EA as a company exists. <laughs> it's great when it's like enter your enter your EA username and password. You're like you're vastly overestimating how much I care about you <laughs> yeah. as an entity. Like I don't know my password. It's interesting because yeah. you don't see any of that stuff on the PS5 version at all. Like yeah. you know, there's no EA account login or anything like that. It's just play space game how nice for you look how it look, <laughs> look how it whooshes yeah no it, it's great for me i'm i'm delighted um <laughs> does the controller make noises uh, it doesn't in this one it does oh. it vibrates a lot it vibrates quite a lot during cutscenes at moments that aren't otherwise like <laughs> obvious like, just like someone's phone going off in their pocket yeah, yeah or like or like you know um you know Maybe Cal has indigestion. You know what I mean? Like, <laughs> like this, occasionally a character would just say something significant. It seems to vibrate on that, which yeah. isn't as traditionally how one uses that technology. It's just, you know, but hey, I'm having a good time. Um, Can I ask you a final question? Mm. Is spam all canon? It is now. That's the magic of Wikipedia, my friend. <laughs> I see. They wrote Spammel. It's a big camel, Jamie, for your benefit. And it's called a Spammel, presumably because it's a space camel. Um, and guess what? It ended up in the game. So absolute hats off to them. I don't believe... I think this is the debut of Spammels. Wow. Um, it's like they've, they've invented, like... They've invented, like... It's basically a bird torn torn, and they've invented several variant wompers. Yeah. You know? 
for the purpose Spamals of... Spamals were blue or purple skin. Oh, for fuck's sake. <laughs> <laughs> the creatures were used as part of a parade held in Jeddah Sitter on the eve of the annual Reflection Day Festival. It's a long article, guys. It goes Fuck's on sake. and on and on. What does, what does it say about the source? And am I wrong? Did they about what? Sorry. I mean, does it? When were they invented? For like Rogue One or something? Did they miss them? Has um, Jeddah ever been in anything before? It's in Rogue One. Oh, is it Jeddah City? Yeah. yeah. So during the Galactic Empire, Empire's occupation of Jeddah, Imperial sand troopers mounted spammals. <laughs> it's such a stupid word. Traverse the moon's cold desert landscape. I don't know. I can't. I can't pick my way through the amount of in-universe detail there is in this article. <laughs> yes, it's Rogue One. There you go. Okay, they're invented for Rogue One. Another. Okay, fine. Uh, I take it all back. It's <laughs> <laughs> creation. This is this is Gareth Edwards, director of Rogue One. A Star Wars story. I'm not sure anyone's noticed the space camels that the stormtroopers ride in Jeddah. If you look really very carefully when Jen and Cassian are walking through the Jeddah, you'll see these giant camel things that the stormtroopers are riding on, on the left. Wow. That's from visionary director <laughs> Gareth Edwards. Look, um, as as a diehard Rogue One apologist, I now love the Spammel. And if the Spammel <laughs> merchandise available at Galaxy's Edge, I'm fucking coming home on one, right? It's like, you know... <laughs> Come back with your spammel or on it. That's that's how I feel about this now. I'm, I'm looking at a beautiful concept painting of one right now, Chris, and they are fucking stupid. Yeah. But do you know what they will do, Jamie? They'll get you up a slippery incline, won't they? <laughs> this is Felicity Jones from Rogue One, a Star Wars story. One of the first shots featured a stormtrooper sitting on a camel. And I thought to myself, quote, wow, I'm in Star Wars. <laughs> <laughs> Nothing says Star Wars like weird camels. I honestly, the little part of my brain that goes, "Wow, I'm in Star Wars," has been triggered so relentlessly by this video game Jedi Survivor that it's now actually like sore. It's all those inclines. That's nice. That's a nice kind of sore. Yeah, 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 yeah. Wow, I think I'm in Star Wars. Um, (laughs) Weird camels. Wow. It's. I mean, you know, they had them in Tatooine. Every planet, its own camel. That's a promise. They got crazy. <laughs> they got there's a, a, when you were talking about mining lasers. There is also mining in Tears of the Kingdom, and you can mine down into mountains and shit, and and you have to knock through rock walls. It's really quite involved. And I was like digging around earlier, and they had underground, um, what I can only describe as underground cave gorillas, which attacked me. <laughs> um, <laughs> And that was pretty cool. So just, I just wanted to add that for balance. Um, <laughs> good to know. Good to know. There's, good to know. That sounds like cave, a this cave gorillas. That sounds <laughs> like a wamper. Sounds like a wamper. Yeah, you know what? So it, was just a wamp- it was just a wamper as well. Just Ain't nothing but a wamper. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. My brain is melted. I'm sorry. The the revelation that I missed the spammel in Rogue One, a film I've seen about eleven. Are times. you even a Star Wars fan, Chris? I can't. I mean. I've, I've hardly been able to claim that for years, I'd be honest. <laughs> like, I you know, but um, I take it all back. I take it all back. What this means is, hilariously, I think this is probably then the first game that's had to, like, take the joke name Spammel and just fucking go for it. But I see you, Respawn writer who wrote the codex entry for Spammels. <laughs> I see you. You know? Should we um, wrap up there? Yeah. Oh, there's one thing I did need to say before we wrap up the podcast, Marsh. Um, it's important. An important coda to my Marvel Snap story from last time I was on the podcast. 
uh, in the intervening weeks, they've patched the game so that should you enter a total horse shit fiasco where you're going to waste four minutes of someone else's time while a, while a series of effects resolve at great length, it now plays a wacky VCR fast forward animation and skips you to the end. And I like to believe that this is my fault. So <laughs> that's my coda to that saga. Um, but, for, but for one glorious moment in all of the history of mankind, you stood atop. It was, it was four minutes of moments, Jamie. my god we can be heroes exactly um uh great yes i think we should stop now thanks marsh well fittingly uh that is all the moments that we have for this podcast um i still don't know if we managed to justify recording it if you'd like to send us a question (laughs) you can do so questions at crankandcrowbar.com you can tweet us at Crate and Crowbar. All these recordings are uploaded as videos to YouTube. You can find other stuff by us there. That is at youtube.com slash Crate and Crowbar. And thanks, as always, to our backers and Patreon. You can back us too at patreon.com slash Crate and Crowbar, or you can join our Discord community, uh, the link for which is on our website, crateandcrowbar.com. That's it. I've been Marsh Davis. I've been Jamie Britton. And I've been Chris Thurston, spammel enthusiast. <laughs> <laughs> wow, I'm in Star Wars. Ha, 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 ha.